This talk is called Exile in the Cremation Grounds. So on uh, Wednesday, we heard the story of King Indrabhuti of Udhyana, of his discovery of the wish-fulfilling gem, and his even more remarkable discovery of a fully-grown eight-year-old boy sitting in the midst of a lotus in the lake of Dharnakosha. The boy being, of course, Padmasambhava, the lotus-born. He was brought to the palace and quickly enthroned and empowered as the crown prince, the Yuvaraj of the kingdom, uh, the now fertile, rich and happy world of Udhyana, a good Buddhist country, tolerant, peaceful and so on. So all is as it should be. But as I indicated at the end of the talk on Wednesday, a found child might be a wonderful, beautiful child, a prodigy, but such a child will always be rather mysterious, will always be, in fact, a stranger. He comes from an altogether different plane. Uh, in this case, he comes from what's called the Dharma Dhatu, the realm of reality itself. Padmasambhava, in fact, is always a stranger to this world. He's not of it at all. He's in it, incredibly in it, but never quite of it. This is one of the, thing, the things you get from reading his life story of this uh, character who uh, just cannot be kind of held down and defined, but very involved. And the boy Padmasambhava grew up very quickly. Of course, he was gifted, brilliant and restless as a strange found child would probably be. He'd go off on solitary walks, which you, know, you shouldn't do if you're a prince in India. Uh, he'd go off looking pensive. And on one of these walks, he had a great vision. Suddenly in the sky, there appeared Vajrasattva, the adamantine being. If you don't know who Vajrasattva is, that's uh, an icon, an image of Vajrasattva. And Vajrasattva was ringing his bell saying, it's time, it's time to leave the kingdom. And King Indrabhuti sensed something was wrong and he acted quickly um, as Indian fathers do. He got Padmasambhava married off. Must be, that must be why he's restless. So really nailing Padmasambhava down, or so he thought. But of course it didn't cure the prince's restlessness. He felt hemmed in by the palace, by the kingdom with all its ceremony and custom and religious observance. Something had to be done and something drastic had to be done to change the situation. He needed to be gone, definitively, finally, fully, irrevocably gone. So then the strangeness, the weirdness began to happen. He started to dress very unusually for an Indian prince in the court. He started to dress in the gear of a yogi, uh, going about naked, except for just some animal skins, putting on a garland of severed heads and marching around with a vajra, the adamantine thunderbolt, there's one on the shrine there, and a trident, you see the trident in the painting there, well, this, isn't, this wasn't how he should you know, be behaving, letting his hair just go wild. He shouldn't be doing this. This is what you know, bad people do. You know, yogis in India were regarded as rather dodgy characters that you don't really want much to do with. And one day in this gear, he climbed to the top of the palace and began to dance and sing and chant and do a crazy invocation his eyes wild, his hair running free, rattling a hand drum, ecstatic, wild, yet full of a weird purpose. And of course, a crowd gathered in the courtyard below the palace. And then suddenly, the Vajra that he was holding, the trident he was holding, were dropped. And the Vajra just flew to the head of a Brahmin boy, killing him outright. And the trident just went straight into his mother, killing her. The dance was over and there was a deathly shocked silence. 
And then, of course, there was uproar, absolute uproar. The, the husband of the wife, the father of the boy, was one of the king's most important Brahmin ministers. And he had the prince seized and jailed, incarcerated, and all the ministers were clamouring around the king, Indrabhuti, for justice, which must surely be the most severe of penalties. But Indrabhuti, he was the king after all, he had absolute power, and his love for his son was so great, even though it was an adopted son, he couldn't bear that. He couldn't bear the severest of, of penalties. So there would have to be a compromise. So the compromise was that the prince would be sent into exile. He would have to do severe penance, purification. He must be exiled to the great, to the fearsome, cremation ground called Sitavana, Chili Grove. So off he was sent to this distant place, this lonely, great cremation ground, Chili Grove. So Padmasambhava certainly got what he wanted. Irrevocable banishment, complete exile, complete and total rejection from the court, from polite society. Uh, although banished to the cremation ground, that gave him the complete freedom to give full expression to his spiritual vision, to his spiritual practice. Now, before we see what that entailed, we need to look more closely at this strange incident, the crazy dance and the slaying of the Brahmin boy and his mother. What on earth? is going on here. I'm sure some of you are thinking, hang on, this is a Buddhist text, you know, what's what's happening here? Um, Padmasambhava is supposed to be the manifestation of wisdom and compassion, so what's happening? Well, right away it's important, in fact it's crucial, uh, not to take this story literally. When you look at some of the Tibetan commentaries on this, they say, oh no, 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 you mustn't take this literally, you mustn't take this as... Uh, uh, as a as a as a a basis for action, this kind of incident in this kind of text uh, is not providing a pattern for action. It's entirely symbolic. The most basic the most basic Buddhist precept is, is to abstain from killing living beings, to abstain from violence and harm. That's absolutely basic. So when you get an incident like this, and you do get this in uh, some of these tantric, Indian tantric texts. You even get it in uh, get Strange Verses in the Dhammapada, which talk about killing. Uh, they need to be seen symbolically. They must be seen symbolically. They're not to be taken literally. I can't stress this enough. It's a dramatic way, a shocking way, of describing the, the slaying of the root negative emotions, greed, hatred and delusion that fill our minds. They are what need to be slayed, not living beings. So let's be very, very clear about that. I'm sort of imagining the study groups tomorrow saying, hang on, uh, uh, you know, but you know, be very clear. This is no, not advocating killing. But there is actually something else going on in this story. These, these stories in this kind of text are sort of multi-layered. Um, you know, and you, you, you have to read them in, in all sorts of levels. The fact that the prince slays Brahmins is hugely significant. According to the traditional Hindu caste system, the Brahmin uh, caste are the highest caste, gods on earth. And they symbolise in Buddhist tantric literature rigid, orthodox, institutional religion, society and culture. And they also symbolise the oppression of that rigid orthodoxy. Slaying the Brahmin really means destroying convention, even destroying your reputation, becoming a thoroughly disreputable person in the eyes of good and sober citizens. What this story also symbolises is that the, the good is very often the enemy of the best, as our teacher Sangharachita once said. The good is very often the enemy of the best. Padmasambhava is the visionary, the stranger. The king was trying to incorporate him 
into the court, into uh, conventional, rigidly stratified Indian society. Even Buddhism had become incorporated into that, into all the sort of customs and ceremonies. Buddhism had been had become part of, you know, the conventional way of things. It had lost a lot of its sort of energy. Um, this is what the story seems to be indicating. But Babasambhava's vision was being compromised. His searing revolutionary vision was being compromised. And this can happen to us. We have a vision of what's possible. And it's so easy to compromise that. And other people can be very quick to try and control it. To try and control you. Your vision compels you to change. You want to change absolutely everything. Your vision demands that of you. It demands that you question everything. And I mean everything. Everything you know. All convention. You just have to, you just have to question it. All received opinion. You know, in our context, whether that received opinion is symbolised by the Daily Mail or the Guardian. You know, to take, you know, I think you get what I'm, I'm getting at there. It's sort of symbolically. That, that's all convention. When vision, real vision, gets you, you want to, you have to, turn everything over and upside down and inside out. And there will be voices, even people quite close to us, even very close to us, trying to calm us down, calm you down. Don't be, don't be extreme, don't go to extremes, don't, don't change your life too much. I mean, the Buddha taught the middle way. Of course, what they mean by the middle way is mediocrity. Don't go too far. Don't go too far. Uh, don't be too idealistic. You can be a Buddhist and carry on as normal. Normal? Being a Buddhist and carry on as normal? Normal and Buddhist don't belong in the same, uh, the same sentence. And so vision is, is compromised, made safe. And of course we'll be accused of all sorts of stuff if we want to act out of our vision. We'll be accused of being selfish being bad, even regarded as sort of evil, um, because you're sort of changing. Even some people might think you're destroying your existing relationship, for example. But what's really happening is that you want to be authentic. You need to be authentic. You want to live without compromise. So you take up the Vajra. The Vajra symbolises really authentic being. You take up the trident and you garland yourself with skulls and you begin to dance. You begin to break out. You begin to break free. So this is what this incident is really symbolising. It, it may well be, when we have this vision, that we will become unpopular. May even be regarded as bad, as not a nice person to know. I've certainly you know, seen that in my time. It's never sort of really... I don't think it's ever happened to me. Maybe... I'm not living authentically enough, but uh, I do know friends of mine, you know, really good people, really, really good, you know, unselfish people being accused of being really terrible people because they're going about making big, big changes in their life. You know, they're regarded as not a nice person to know. But, you know, actually, all really great people have been, in fact, a bit of a disgrace to us, supposedly upright and sober citizens. A bit of a disgrace. Um, you know, in a way, uh, we often want our saints and our heroes to be sort of squeaky clean. You know, this thing with Tiger Woods recently, anybody who listens to those things, you know, the, the squeaky clean golfer, you know, and everybody's sort of horrified, you know, at, at, at his behaviour. Like, Come on, get real. You know, but even, even the great sort of so-called religious, spiritual people, they can seem like very dodgy characters. Many years ago, I was talking to my father. Uh, he died some years ago, but, but uh, some years before his death, we were having a really good, a really interesting chat. Um, he's a, he's a, an Anglican, my father, and he regularly went to the local church, just down the road, little church, uh, St. Francis Church, and uh, on the patronal festival the bishop came uh, to give a, a sermon and he began talking about St Francis and he said actually if St Francis walked into this church right now the congregation you 
would not have approved. He would have been probably unwashed, wearing travel-stained rough robes. He would have looked rather unkempt, rather wild. He would have been a pauper, a beggar. And, uh, you know, he wouldn't be attempting to fit in with you. He'd be completely focused on his God, his Christ. Um, and without saying a word, he'd be a living indictment of the whole church. And my father was very impressed by this. It says a lot for my father, actually. He was very, very struck by this comment of the bishop. And uh, I'm glad he told me about it because it made me start thinking about the Buddha. We tend to think that if the Buddha we walked in, you know, we'd be so impressed. We'd, you know, we'd, we'd just, oh, you know, <laughs> you know, he'd come in and he'd be wearing you know, nicely, neatly pressed yellow robes, you know, he'd be all sleek and shiny and clean with a bump on his head and so on. And, you know, we'd all be, oh, you know, so pleased and he'd be so kind and nice to us and all the rest of it. It wouldn't be like that. If he'd met the Buddha on some days, he would have been wearing rough, brownish robes, probably rags stitched together. He may well have been unshaven, you know, with quite a bit of stubble. He didn't shave every day. He would have looked incredibly mindful. You know, real, I mean, you know, a mindfulness, okay, a peace for sure, but the mindfulness would have an intensity to it that would seem dangerous even a bit threatening. Okay, we know he has love and compassion, but that doesn't mean that he's nice. And you have to know that in the Buddha's day, you know, very often you could, it's worth reading through the Buddhist texts and forget all your ideas about the nice, squeaky clean Buddha. I'm not saying the Buddha was immoral or anything like that, but there's all sorts of stories where basically the Buddha is, is, is regarded as a bit of a bad, bad one by conventional society. He was so effective as a teacher. So many young men followed him, became wanderers like him, leaving their homes. You know, these are quite, you know, quite well-to-do families. He was accused of putting a spell on them. You know, putting a spell on them. And you can imagine people wondering, scratching their heads, is he a saint? Is he a sinner? You know, all those sorts of things. Because he's not fitting in. So let's not compromise our vision. That's the basic point here. Don't compromise. So Padmasambhava leaves the palace and he goes into exile in the great and fearful cremation ground of Chili Grove. And he dons now all the time the gear of the yogi. He's wearing animal skin, skins and cloth found in the burning ground. He just lets his hair grow. It becomes long and matted. He takes up a skull cup, a skull bowl, as something to drink out of. He's living as a beggar among the dead, with the dead. In a way, he sort of is dead. All these things that he's doing in the cremation ground would have been regarded as thoroughly dis disreputable in Indian society. The dead, the places of the dead, are regarded according to traditional Hinduism as being ritually impure, ritually impure and unclean. So only the lowly would go there, would work there. The outcasts, so-called, would be associated with the dead. Padmasambhava just takes that on. He becomes, effectively, an outcast. He goes there, he goes into that place that the society doesn't want to know about, doesn't even want to hear about. And the cremation grounds of ancient India were, in, in, those, in those times were very lonely places, away from human habitation, outside the town, outside the village, places where the dead were just left to decompose codes or, you know, from time to time heaped up on a pyre by the lowly who, who worked there. And these cremation grounds are strange, were strange and silent places with quite a quite a strange vibration, a strange atmosphere. And they were the haunt of the hyena, the vulture and other scavengers. And they were regarded as well as haunted, frightening places, especially at night and all sorts of stories associated with the cremation ground. It was the abode 
of strange gods and goddesses, of ghouls and vampires, and especially the cremation ground, was the abode of the Darkenese. Darkenese, uh, this term Darkeny has a number of meanings, but in this sense it means sort of female ghouls, ogresses, flesh eaters, strange and dangerous. This was where Padmasambhava went into exile. He went right outside of safe, conventional society, went alone to meditate, to go deep into meditation, to discover the deepest meaning. And he went here to the cremation ground to receive teachings, initiations, and to actually commune with the darkenings. He didn't just spend, spend, just spend time in Chili Grove. Padmasambhava, in fact, stayed in the eight great Indian cremation grounds. There were these eight special cremation grounds in India at that time. Uh, and he travelled throughout these, th uh, to these cremation grounds that spread throughout the whole of India to practice, to live in these wild and dangerous places. So let's hear now how the cremation ground is described in the Padma Kaitang. Let's have a description of Chili Grove. Now directly to the southwest of the Diamond Throne, there extends for five leagues and more the cemetery of Chili Grove, a grove filled with decay, also called the reed bed. Located in an area measuring one and a half leagues around, it is like a land of precious jewels, level like the palm of the hand, lofty and without hollows. In the middle, where it fell from the hands of the gods, is the stupa called structure which gives happiness. A stupa on the outside, but within a celestial palace, made of all sorts of rare substances. The door is copper-leafed with gold and the palace supports the disc, the parasol and the chalice. It has bells well arranged which sound various notes and has four statues of the Buddha, one for each side. In the northwest of the cemetery is the statue of the great god of the world and Bhasala, the tree of desires, inhabited by the innumerable multitude of the birds of the tombs. The god of the world... Nandikeshvara rides a black lion, holds a black trident and wears a flowing robe the colour of red poppies and with their following of inescapable executors numbering ten million, the spirits of the eight classes are assembled. There are to be seen there countless darkenings. Some of them have eyes that dart out sun rays. Others give rise to thunderclaps and ride water buffaloes. Others hold sabres and have eyes which inflict harm. Others wear death's heads one above the other and ride tigers. Others wear corpses and ride lions. Others eat entrails and ride eagles. Others have flaming lances and ride jackals. Others, five-faced, are steeped in a lake of blood. Others, in their numberless hands, carry many generations of living beings. Others carry in their hands their own heads, which they have severed. Others carry in their hands in their own hearts, which they have torn out. There are others who have made gaping wounds in their own bodies and who empty out and devour their own intestines and entrails. There are others who hide and yet reveal their male or female sexual organs. Riding horses, bulls, elephants. In the central lake, cloud of purification, is the carnal ground, the haunted place, where others cannot venture, venture. There they stand, sucking the substance of life, thinking of the conversion to be carried out, 
Padmasambhava, having come to this place, took for a seat a heap of both recent and older corpses. Trembling with fear, the living beings who dwelt in the cemetery came forward to offer him fruits of rare beauty, while the Darkenese bowed down to him again and again. Now, leaning against the central stupa, for five years, by means of the nine excellent vehicles, he taught the Dharma to the crowd of Darkenese. So what are we to make of all that? What possible relevance could this have for us here and now? It's wonderfully graphic, isn't it? Those darkenies dancing, dancing with their heads off, taking their hearts out. Fabulous. Make a wonderful uh, cartoon. I said in yesterday's talk that Padmasambhava is that aspect of enlightenment which is concerned with transformation transformation of the depths, the unconscious depths. There's so much energy locked up in those depths and we need that energy if we're to make any real spiritual progress. So Padmasambhava going to the cremation grounds symbolises first of all confronting our fears, especially the fundamental, the primal fear of death and all the taboos that go with death. So much energy is unavailable because on one level or other we resist, we keep at bay the actual reality of death, the actual reality of our own death, the actual reality of the death of others, especially those near and dear to us. And throughout Buddhist tradition we're encouraged to meditate on death, not in a morbid kind of way, in a way that induces depression, when we meditate on death, we're encouraged to do so in the context of the metabhavna. We need to be emotionally robust so that we can regard death as it really is, so that we can look at it with a calm eye, a loving eye. So having developed a very positive and concentrated mind, we can, we can begin to employ the classic reflections on death in Buddhist tradition and these involve three basic reflections and they're really very very simple. First of all we need to reflect on the inevitability of death. The inevitability of death. Death is a fact. It happens to everyone, it happens to everything. Death cannot be cheated in any way. Death is part of life it's intrinsic to life. Where there is birth, there is death. Where there is life, there is death. There is arising and there is passing. Wherever there is a beginning, there is an ending. So we need to be clear. This is the way it is. Such a reflection means that we have to live a life in the light of that truth. You know, when you start meditating on death, it means you begin to live a life in the light of that truth, that reality, that great mystery even, the fact of death. We need to ask ourselves, what is the most meaningful way to live in the light of death? This is the effect of this kind of meditation. What is the most meaningful way to live in the light of the fact of my death? the fact of the death of others. The second reflection is that the time of death is uncertain. No one knows when it will happen. It's even said in these reflections, you even reflect on the Buddha, it's, it, it says, you know, the Buddha who's supposed to be all-knowing, even he does not know the time of someone's death. So no one knows when death will happen. We don't know when we will die. We might fantasise that it will come after a long life. There we will be in our bed, propped up with our friends around us, saying our farewells. And we just sink away, you know, after we've done all the things we want to do. We don't know that. We don't know that. It can come at any time, in any way. There's no way of knowing. Any moment could be our very last moment. At any time, we could be thinking our last thought 
uttering our last word, performing our last gesture, well, what will they be? What will our last thoughts, our last words, our last gestures actually be? The uncertainty of the moment of death is not meant to induce panic, but it's there to, it, that, that reflection is there to engender living well, living meaningfully, living in a way that will truly benefit ourselves and others. The third reflection is, at the time of death, only the Dharma can really help us. We go into death completely alone. We go into that mystery, into that unknown place with no one. When we face death, death, when we face death it's just us. Whether friends are around or not, it's only ourselves who take the journey. So we need something that can make sense of what is happening that can relate to what is happening, so that we can work with what is happening. The Dharma, the practices of the Dharma, are about, are there to induce full awareness of the way things are, and loving kindness in relation to whatever arises. The practices of the Dharma are about, the induce the development of confidence and courage, and complete honesty in relation to what is actually happening. Well, we're going to need that at the time of death. By practising the Dharma, just to be clear, I don't mean pious Buddhist thoughts. That's not going to do anything. At the time of death, our experience, our world, will be falling apart. All certainty will be just crumbling away. Our senses will be closing down. Our bodily functions will be out of control. All sorts of new experiences will be happening. We'll probably, you know, be pumped full of all kinds of drugs as well. We might well be in intense pain of one kind or another. So in the face of all this, our realisation of the Dharma, our spiritual practice, will need to be very strong. In fact... It needs to be not dependent on conditions, even on good physical conditions. You know, we take so much for granted, actually. We assume so much about what we know, about what we've achieved. But we're heavily dependent on conditions, heavily dependent upon conditions. Well, death is when all the refuges, all the conditions are taken away. So only the Dharma, our Dharma realisation is going to make sense of what's going on. So the effect of this kind of, re of reflection is to practice the Dharma with real commitment and intensity in every situation. Because we don't know when we will die. Do we really want to go out arguing with others, if not actually doing it to their face, arguing with them in our minds? Do we want to go out quarrelling with others? Do we want to go out simply as a slave to our rather banal desires? Or do we want to go out filled with wonder and curiosity at what is actually happening? Ecstatic in relation to the transformations that are taking place, filled with love and courage, so Padmasambhava, practising in the cremation grounds, symbolises continuous awareness of death. Uh, practising the Dharma, living our life in the light of the cremation pyre. But the cremation ground doesn't only symbolise death, it, it, it's more than that. In our readings, you'll, you'll recall that the Darkanese Cape changing their appearance. They dance, they chop their heads off and dance with them. They change their sex. They're constantly moving and changing. So the cremation ground is the place of continuous 
transformation. So here's another cremation ground that brings this out a bit. This is a cremation ground called appropriately Body's End. Sounds like the last bus stop, doesn't it? <laughs> the number 39 to Body's End. <laughs> then Padmasambhava came to the country called Baida, in which is the great cemetery of Body's End, with a perimeter of three and one-half leagues, at the centre is the Mount Potala Stupa, built of a precious crystal substance. In the rear is the great monastery of Sairima. In the east, the supernatural tree called, which radiates magic force. A tree of the tombs, frequented by many birds of the tombs. Beneath dwell thaumaturges of non-human race, who turn beautiful women into bitches, who change pebbles and pieces of wood into living beings and skeletons, who change planets, stars, sun and moon into desiccated corpses and work all sorts of similar prodigies. To the south of the cemetery and formed by the water from the tombs is the lake of contiguity, which has as its centre skeletons issuing from a fivefold lotus stand and all around, the intimate glow of the crematory fires reveals amid the flames bodies opened or in pieces, with skins, hands, heads, feet, fresh or in decay, burnt, not burnt, or burnt incompletely. To the west, the obituary wind spirals in tempest force, and in the wind's midst, troops of booters, spirits, and of the deceased, Riding on children, sheep, bulls and skeletons, bear off some of them the infirm, some the dead, some of them snot, some fire and water, some of them melted fat and some strips of flesh, and so on and so forth. It's too much. So the cremation ground not only symbolises death, it symbolises the constant transformation of all things. We tend to believe that things are fixed and substantial. We have a fixed, substantial, really existing, separate self. Others are the same. They have a really existing, fixed and separate self. We think, okay, yeah, well, there's a bit of change, but really people and things are as they are. And because of this, because we have this fixed view of ourselves and our life, of our world, because of this, again, energy is blocked. And so we don't make real spiritual progress. Somewhere, deep down, we believe it's not actually possible to make real, lasting change. We have a rigid self-view and a rigid view of others too. But Buddhism says, no, this is not the way things are. If you look, if you really look and look, you will find that there is no fixed permanent essence anywhere, in anything. There is just continuous transformation, continuous change. There's no fixed self or substance anywhere at all. This is the great Buddhist teaching of shunyata, emptiness. Which doesn't mean there's, there's, there's just nothing. What it really means, what Shunyata really means, actually, everything is a wondrous transformation in ourselves, in our world. There is just transformation. It's very, very. Uh, it's a very good time of year to observe this. Um, I, I usually say this this time of year in a talk here. Go and do some meditation. When I say meditation, I mean just go and look and, and uh, be in the uh, nature reserve up the road on the left. Go right into it on your own and really have a good look and really try to feel the snow melt and the sunshine, if there is any sunshine, or the rain, and see the mud and the bare trees. Um, and just have a good look at the mud and the decay. Everything is sort of rotting down into black water it's really fantastic you're just watching the 
the transformation go on. Really look at that. Really look at the changes. And also, of course, we know that uh, <coughs> the dark days have <coughs> ended. We are, we're turning towards spring, although it's still a long way away. We know if we come here in the springtime, we'll be in a very, very different world. So look at all that change and transformation. And then look at it in yourself. All the different sort of bodily, physical experiences. There's just constant change and transformation. Look at your mind. Look at your emotion, your feelings, your thoughts. The images that flow through your mind. Just notice the endless transformations. So we need to wake up to this and see ourselves as part of this. If we really do it, if we really get hold of this, it means actually anything is possible. The fact of the empty nature of everything, the transform transformative nature of everything, means that Buddhahood is possible. Wisdom and compassion are possible of attainment. Because we are not fixed in any way, we can become Buddhists. It's as simple as that. This, by the way, is the meaning of the Padma Tudtrin Sal Mantra, which I believe you're chanting in the, in the evenings. Padma Tudtrin Sal means lotus strength of the rosary of skulls. Lotus strength of the rosary of skulls. Having the strength of the rosary of skulls, taking hold of the rosaries of skulls and rosary of skulls and having its strength, means that you know that all is transformation. All is emptiness. You can be anything. You can be Buddha. And others can be Buddha as well. And you live only to bring that about. When Padmasambhava dons the rosary of skulls in the palace, this is what he is asserting. This is what he's declaring. I will not be fixed on the tracks you're laying down for me. I will, well, I will live the life of transformation in the world of transformation. So he goes to the cremation grounds and lives in the world of transformations. I keep saying he goes to. Padmasambhava and others like him would have actually gone to those places. I believe there's still people in India who, who do dwell in the cremation grounds. There are still some great cremation grounds left. I don't know if you can um, really get away from everything there, but they still actually exist. Um, it's very concrete, isn't it, going to the cre cremation ground. So how do we make it concrete? Well, we could fly off to India and find a cremation ground. That might be a good thing to do. Um, if you can get away from people, India, even cremation grounds, these days I should think, you know, we'll have somebody coming up selling you tea. Chai, chai, chai. Or you could go and sit in the churchyard up the road in the middle of the night. That would be very interesting. Um, it would be very interesting, actually. You face your fears. You maybe realise that actually deep down you do believe in ghosts and ghouls and so on. But we can also go to the cremation ground in another way. The cremation ground is where you confront your deepest fears, your strongest taboos. So Sangharakshita once said, that the cremation ground is the crucial situation deliberately sought out. The crucial situation deliberately sought out. It's the place, the situation, where we spiritually evolve, where we expand, where we change, where we grow, where we transform in the direction of Buddhahood, or we perish. We go under. That's what it feels like. It feels so extreme. So we need to find that place. For some people it might be standing up giving a talk to many people. Apparently it's one of the biggest fears that people have, giving a public talk. Not, not one that I've really ever suffered, one, suffered from, I have to say. Um, which is a shame, given that I give so many talks, but there you go. But for some people, that could well be a crucial situation. Suddenly being asked to give a talk to a group of people. For some people, the crucial situation might be really opening up to other men. I'm talking free Buddhist audio listeners to a group of men now. 
some men find it really hard to open up to other men, to share their fears, to share their most intimate thoughts. They find that there's a tremendous fear in just in that kind of intimacy, that kind of ordinary intimacy. And so the energy, that, that means the energy of loving kindness is not available. You know, it's sometimes said that spiritual friendship, spiritual community is a cremation ground. It can feel like a crucial situation where change is demanded of you. For some, you know, this is a big one probably for all of us, speaking the truth, really saying what you really think, knowing you will be criticised and disliked and unpopular, but nonetheless saying what you think clearly and kindly, without rancour, standing there and saying it, and everybody there really doesn't like you doing that. Well, that could well be your cremation ground, your crucial situation. Maybe you're defending someone who's being pilloried, who the group don't like, but you're going to stand by them. You're going to stand against the status quo. Sometimes we reach a point in our life where we've just got to do that, even though we're really frightened, but we carry on. It might be um, our, our crucial situation sitting in silence, not doing anything at all, being truly alone and with ourselves. Maybe sitting alone in meditation. Sometimes in meditation, when you start going deeply into it, a great fear can arise. You don't know what the fear is to do with it. It's not sort of about anything. But this is a tremendous fear because you're going deeper and deeper. You're going, you're seeing more deeply into yourself, into experience. Sometimes the crucial situation will be taking up a responsibility that involves other people and the buck actually stops with you. You know, you have to be the person who makes the decision. Well, that can be a very frightening, a very crucial sort of experience. So there are many things. Think of your own cremation grounds. Think of your own crucial situations where you feel as if you might well die in the sense of you know, losing everything unless you change, unless you transform. Maybe even being on this retreat, coming on this retreat, you felt that you were entering a really crucial situation. If you enter the crucial situation with courage, with full awareness, with love, if you don't shrink back, those darkenies will begin to dance and play. The dancing darkenies represent the release of energy and inspiration, the deeper, especially the release of deeper energies and inspirations. And they're now with you, serving you, helping you and enriching you. They are, they are your deepest creative energies bursting through and dancing with you, positively affecting not just you, but others as well. In the cremation grounds, you notice, Padmasambhava is leaning with his back against a stupa. In one of the stories of him in the cremation ground, he's described as going bright red. He's flushed with ecstasy, teaching these weird darkenies, these weird creatures, the Dharma, which doesn't mean he's giving them a lecture on the Four Noble Truths. It's a silent, direct, mind-to-mind -mind transmission. Teaching them the Dharma means that those energies are now part of his spiritual practice, part of his life. And they even kneel before him and worship him. Let me just read you an extract from another time in the cremation ground. This is in a cremation ground called the Pile of the Worlds. And I'm just going to read a little extract from the end of that about some darkenies. In the south... Multicoloured darkenies of knowledge are writing and reading, meditating, explaining and predicting. In the north, the multitude of gods of discrimination assemble. In this great cemetery of terror, Padma, with his back to the stupa, turned the wheel of the Dharma for five years. And the white darkenie, Shantarakshita, the protectress of peace, 
covered below with trousers of white cotton, holding a bowl full of blood in her hand, and having a garland of dried skulls tying her chignon, remained kneeling before Padmasambhava and learned how to wish for the union which saves. So we need to find our crucial situation. We need to find our cremation ground, our cremation ground, so that the Dharkanis will come and dance and play. One of the reasons why we don't make progress in the spiritual life is because it's just not crucial enough for us. It's not life and death for us. Buddhism is more of a hobby, even though we've been doing it for years. So we need to remember that the whole of existence, inner and outer, is a cremation ground. Impermanence and death and transformation are ever-present. And actually, the Dharkanis are always dancing. They're, they're calling out to us all the time, if we could but hear them. Padmasambhava, in some depictions of Padmasambhava in, in, in Buddhist art, you see him encircled by eight Dharkanis. And they, they're, they're said to always be with him. Wherever Padmasambhava is, there's always Dharkanis dancing around him. They are a Sangha, a spiritual community. They are, in a way, him, part of him. They're always with him. They're the energy, the inspiration, um, constantly responding to the transformations of life. When transformed, they are the energies, especially, of love, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity. The Dharkanis are the energies of the bodhicitta, of the enlightened mind, of wisdom and compassion working to benefit everyone. So let's wake up now to our cremation ground, to our crucial situation, to our life, to our death. Let's fiercely, joyously delight in the dance of the Darkanese and work for the good of all. <laughs>